Yesterday I thought he loved her, Philologos said plaintively. I think he did, said one of the others. And she... And I think, said Hilarion, cutting short further discussion, that we are not all needed here. And as all of us have been up through the night, some of us, at least, should go to bed. He put a hand on Philologos's shoulder and pushed him toward the door that led through the king's wardrobes to the cell-like, semi-private rooms where the attendants slept. Who knows but that you will get up to find that the world has inverted itself yet again. He looked around the room at the other attendants as if in warning, but spoke to Philologos. Remember, the love of kings and queens is beyond the compass of us lesser mortals. If anyone noticed, no one commented that he had called the Thief of Edis a king. Everything's my business until it gets weird. A tell-all by Hilarion. <laughs> Welcome to the show, traitorous attendants. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to get you through the wait for Return of the Thief, which is in only 226 days, seven and a half months away. It's January 12th, 2020. Happy New Year and New Decade. Reminder, these characters have been kicking around in our collective brains for nearly a quarter century. And now the last book is coming out in less than the amount of time it takes to grow a baby. (gasps) In today's chapter, a group of soldiers condemned to death are saved by the bell, spousal abuse goes unchecked, and everybody prepares to take side in a conflict that may or may not actually be happening. This one's rough, dude. Yeah. (laughs) It's rough. This, like, sequence of three chapters that we're in now is uh, very bumpy. Yeah, one thing after the other, after the other, after the other. And everybody thinks, like, they see the assassination attempt and then the kiss and the way that Jen and Irene interact in the last chapter, and they think, okay... I've adjusted my view, and now I get it. And then this chapter happens. <laughs> it's like, oh, God, I don't got it. Never mind. <laughs> I guess it's not what's up. <laughs> and what is up? What is up, Caitlin? Who knows, man? <laughs> they do love each other. It just looks like nothing any of these people would ever call love. <laughs> As of right now. <laughs> I want to ask about, like, what does it mean that this is a book for young people and is this being offered as a model? But I don't know if that's even a relevant question to ask because it's so removed from real Like, I don't think it would occur to anyone yeah. to be like, that's what a relationship should look yeah, like. Yeah, no. And, you know, she's given interviews before where she said, like, of course this isn't meant to be, like... You know, obviously, sneaking into someone's room while they're sleeping is a terrible thing to do and no one should do it. But and that's, it that's worked. where we start. Yeah. That's step one. Yeah, and I think she said before, too, that she's not just about the audience she's writing for. She's writing for maybe a certain type of reader instead of, like, an age group, maybe. Yeah, is what I definitely is think that... What I vaguely remember hearing, but whatever. I don't know. One of the reasons that these are so <laughs> enjoyable is because, like... There's books that are for children in the sense that they are aiming to be about 
issues in children's lives specifically are great and valuable, this is not one of those books. Mm -hmm. It just happens to be a structure of story and a reading level that is accessible to young people. Mm -hmm. But the emotional themes possibly get more advanced as we go on. Yeah. And there is, like, there's definitely a coming-of-age element. Mm -hmm. But that coming-of-age, like we talked about when we were reading The Thief, what you think of as, like, the life transition of of coming-of-age changes as you age. Mm -hmm. It could be, I'm 12 and I'm turning 13, or it can be, I'm entering my 30s. Yeah. It's a very broad (laughs) idea. So in this chapter, Costas goes to ask Jen to stop Irene from killing Talaeus and Aris and the rest of the people. And Jen at first says no. Yeah, he says, I can't publicly reverse her orders, which is a really interesting insight into their power dynamic Yeah, in public. Like, he's the one who has the ultimate political power on paper. Mm-hmm. And so, like his relationship with her political power is even more delicate because he can't, like, set the precedent that he can always overrule her or that he will, even though he can, because then that, uh, like, that puts her independent power on shaky ground. Mm -hmm. And her independent power is what keeps the country in line. So you can't threaten that or else you're just, like, changing the power dynamics of the whole country, which is why, like, all those barons and whoever are coming to see him at the end of it because they think it's being shaken up yeah they think now we have to take a side and like i can't publicly reverse her orders technically he can mm-hmm. uh but that would both undermine her and i think like his position is not solidified enough for him to be able to do that successfully i think if yeah. he genuinely got into a conflict with her now uh He would not win. Like, when she is presiding over condemning these men to death, his empty throne is next to her. And the narration says that it might as well have been invisible. His presence or lack thereof does not matter to anybody in that room. Mm -hmm. Because she is the one who is making those decisions. But wouldn't you call this a genuine conflict here? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think... (laughs) <laughs> there are so many there's so many levels to conflict because i mean uh in this like world, the way they go slap up, in yeah. the face really a conflict i think no i'm i was thinking um like the disagreement over whether or not to kill Talaeus. because once she calms down i'm sure she sees it is the right thing to do yeah i think that um what i would term a public conflict and what he's trying to avoid with the way that he does this is if he came in and said I am now deciding that you cannot do this I am overruling your decision Mm -hmm. as opposed to this where he asks her to reconsider her decision and it's still like it's clear what's happening everybody knows that they're watching a tug of war yeah. between the two of them, but it's less. Uh, it gives her the opportunity 
to save face because mm-hmm. it's still ultimately on paper her choice even if he's nudged her yeah and people know that he's done that and her anger in this scene do you think it's uh part of it obviously must be that she feels this is going against justice mm-hmm. um and she yells at him like is there no one who will see punished so she's still just so frustrated that he's just letting people do things to him and this is just another culmination of he just won't act well do you think another part of her anger is she's angry that he used the reminder of him of her cutting off his hand to get her to change her mind in this yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely i think so because he backs her into a corner there's no way that she can not respond to that yeah and also i just had a thought that like that line itself is extra relevant because she made the decision to cut his hand off or at least not to hang him when she was furious Mm -hmm. because she overstepped in anger and then regretted it and now she's super angry and he's telling her don't overstep again because you would regret it if you killed Talaeus. Yeah. And he's doing to her what he does to everyone, which is, you're free to make your choice, but I have made it so that there is only one choice that you can make. Mm. And it's hard, I imagine, not to feel resentful Yeah, of it- that, especially if you're her. <laughs> right. Where... She spent so much of the end of Queen of Adolia thinking that this was just the end of her political power and the end of her political life. And, like, I don't know that this would necessarily be an affirmation of this, but it could feel like that. Yeah. Maybe at this one moment. And she says, like, you you uh, undermined my authority here. And he says, you said I could. Which is so, like, you said I could. <laughs> Yeah, that he unmade her decisions. And then she hits him in front of people. I've always been surprised that she hit him. That's, it's, ooh. It's rough, my friends. Because, I mean, it's not so much of a surprise when she hits him earlier before you know they're in love with each other and they're on the same side. But now I'm like, oh. It's almost a moot point, like, talking about how this is a... negative dynamic. (laughs) Right, because so much of their relationship is a negative dynamic. We can't, like, take a position on it. Yeah. Like we would if they were real people. Which relates to the whole, the love of kings and queens is beyond the compass of us lesser mortals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We just kind of have to pass that one by. (laughs) We kind of... It's just... Yikes, we'll just, uh... (laughs) forget that ever happened but like you wouldn't want to be these people no and no wonder he'll always be afraid of her she remains capable of hurting him i would call that kind of bizarre (laughs) just that i mean after she's hurt him so much and that's clearly like really tormenting her throughout this book and part of the last book Mm -hmm. to still in the future and the present still be capable of hurting him is like weird you know what i mean yeah i mean people don't change magically overnight yeah and he made the decision that he would always forgive her and he has committed to that because we're talking about the violence in their relationship and we're also talking about this 
political violence that she is going to enact. And looking at those two things, it's kind of surprising that there's not more discussion about morality and violence in this chapter. Mm. Because it ends up being very practical. Like, when Costas is talking about why he wants to save Talaeus's life, he outlines practical reasons. Right. She's making a mistake because she cannot afford to lose you. The men will not follow your replacement. So it's, like, it's not just a moral mistake, or it's not the most important thing that it's a moral mistake. Mm-hmm. It's a practical mistake. Yeah, no, I don't think anyone brings morals into it at all. Even when Jen and Atolia are talking, and Jen is listing reasons that he needs to list, he, I think he just says, you know, I need him. I need him. Yeah. I still do, whatever. But he's not... I feel like morals doesn't even really factor into how these people are thinking about it, because Atolia views this as justice. They failed... They have to die. Mm-hmm. That is just so. Either being just makes it moral, or you know, morals just isn't really a factor in what she does. She thinks about it in the terms of greater good or whatever, or political stability, or you know. I don't feel like she's super driven by a moral compass. <laughs> I'm kind of surprised that she makes this mistake because. We know from looking at her, looking at her track record, that she's made a lot of smart decisions. That's the only reason why she's still alive. But we, the readers, really only are with her in this book for her mistakes. I think the common thread here for why is she making this mistake is because she's angry. Just like the last one. You know, she's not thinking rationally. Yeah. But is that... Has she changed and become more driven by an anger that is less manageable than before? Because she she has been so successful. And one of the reasons why uh, like she benefits from Jen coming in is just because like she's reached the limit of what she can do with the position and resources that she has. Mm-hmm. But it it also sort of seems like she... Uh, like, she's, she stumbles more in during this period. I think it's... I think we can still maybe pin that down to Jen's influence, maybe. Because we get the sense, like, in some other book somewhere else, I think the next one, Edith says that Jen lets Atolia take the reins of power because he gets angry. And she only ever gets angry at him. Mm-hmm. So that and like just other scattered things makes me think that like the only times we really see her angry are in relation to him yeah and that in other aspects of her political life she's just passionless calculating no emotions now she has something to lose which she didn't have before Mm. and he like he redirects her anger at him yeah she's angry that's a good point on his behalf and she's gonna kill all these people (laughs) Uh, and he changes it so that she's angry at him. And he would rather that she hit him once than kill ten dudes. Fair. <laughs> I think that checks out. <laughs> the, if we're making uh, moral comparisons, people gather to watch the 
guardsmen get condemned to death, which is effed up. I don't think they're watching it as some sort of spectacle. But it says they're not going to miss the chance to see the captain of the guard get condemned to death. Mm. Yeah, but I still kind of think of it as a, like, if your queen is this angry, you have to know what's going on (laughs) type of thing. Not like a, yeah, I don't know. Though that that sentence does kind of imply, uh, what do you call it, voyeurism or whatever. Yeah, like people used to... That's watch executions. Yeah. They there was nothing better to do. <laughs> There's a tension between the idea of like the divinity or more than humanness of the monarch and uh these people just being human. Like Costa says she's human like us all, so she can make mistakes. But also the love of kings and queens is beyond the compass of us lesser mortals. And the descriptions of Atulia in this chapter are all uh like drawing parallels between her and the goddess uh like when she gets angry or like when when Tileus makes like says whatever he says it says the room darkened as a sudden morning draft swept through the open windows and blew through the chandeliers guttering their flames so the god of drama is paying attention (laughs) and sudden darkness yeah Yeah. maybe that could also be a factor in why she's so angry because clearly the gods are uh tuned in they're 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 watching yeah yeah that would make her angry if she was thinking about that she is not the biggest fan of old Festia these days and delay is using the invocation to the great goddess is obviously another connection between the two of them, where she already dresses in imitation of Hephaestia, mm-hmm. etc. But also, um, Costas's internal narration says, not even in the battle for Thegmas or in the garden with the assassins had he been so frightened. The queen had passed him, so close he'd felt the stir of air, and he had guessed that if she had turned her head only a little and met his eyes, he might have died right there, so potent was her anger. Which I kind of connect to the moment when Jen looks into Hephaestia's eyes at the end of The Thief. Yeah. That, that's something that very few get the chance to do, and it's not something to do lightly. And Costas is thinking this woman's glance can literally kill. Like, that's not a human. And it's also <laughs> a, a parallel with uh, Edith looks at somebody with a, a look that could melt lead in the Queen of Atolia. Mm-hmm. And Atolia says back to Tileus, Ere translates as love, a rather ruthless love, not mercy, Tileus. The great goddess of Edith is not known for her mercy. Yeah, because Tileus translates she. that word as mercy. Yeah. Yeah, the... Uh, and he, also, he's getting that from Costas, who's getting it directly from, from Jen. Jen. So yeah. did Jen put it as mercy instead of love on purpose there? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, Atolia is... Her experiences with the great goddess have not been... Uh, overall positive i would say (laughs) no no i'm also i'm still impressed that like now that she knows the gods are actually real she's still continuing to dress in imitation of Hephaestia. like i don't even care if you're offended or if it's presumptuous i'm gonna keep doing it oh yeah even though you're real (laughs) i'm here for her hubris yeah Yeah. because they've they what have they ever done for her yeah (laughs) If she can put the blame on anybody other than the maid, it's the gods. Yeah. 
And, I mean, I think what we get out of the end of Queen of Italia is that the gods are also responsible for all the good things that have happened in Jen's life, you know, bringing them together, but... Uh, Atolia has not reached that conclusion yet. <laughs> no. Or if she has, um, she knows that, like, you, you can't trust them to yeah. give you what you want. Because they don't have your best interests at heart. Or, yeah, like, they might, fickle. but that's on the the low end of the priority list after, you know. Yeah, or what Peninsula they consider to be your best interest may not be what you consider to be your best <laughs> right. interest. Yeah. And so we have this scene, then she goes and has a fight with Jen. And that's in the morning, and then Costas goes to sleep for, like, the whole day. <laughs> out of, out of so, fear. So would I. <laughs> he just takes a fear nap. <laughs> and then at the end of the day, um, she's been in her apartment the whole day, and one of the guards says, nobody even knows where Talaeus is, but Ankylus is still, uh, like, acting as captain. So, do you think Talaeus is with Atolia? Because that's kind of what I thought. Uh, I don't know. Like, where else would he be? Is that something you remember us finding out? I don't think we find out. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe he's also taking a fear nap. <laughs> fear naps all around. Yeah. Uh, there's some uh, return to our favorite segment, gender. No woman could slap her husband across the face and still pretend affection. No man could be slapped and still pretend to be a man. It's, it's emasculating. Yeah. And also... On a related note, um, so that's, you know, the guards' view. Their low opinion of the king was in no way changed by what they would have seen in any other man as insane courage in facing Atolia in a rage. Yeah. They so, just can't, like, comprehend the way that they relate to each other. Yeah. They're just, they're also kind of just cherry-picking. Yeah. On, in their opinions about eugenities, you know. He's been emasculated because he got slapped but he just did something we would consider insanely courageous in any other man. But that doesn't count because I don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to, to come back to this kind of idea towards the end of this book because I think that there's a lot of potential in uh, Jen's arc in this book as a trans narrative. And I want us to keep that in mind as we go when we think about how other people think about his gender and his body. That's chapter nine. Next time, hey, wait a minute. Is that a god? Send us your comments, questions, thoughts. Chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. Be blessed in your endeavors. Thank you for listening. This has been an amateur embroidery production. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, anywhere podcasts are available. 